1492, the last Muslim stronghold in Spain, the Emirate of Granada, fell to Spanish forces. Well, all American school children learned what came after that. Spain sent Columbus to the New World, and this kicked off a wave of conquest and colonization, a wave which would eventually encompass the Arab world itself. It was the end of a long process of Muslim retreat that began almost immediately after the initial Arab conquests and would take some 770 years. While the painful episodes of the Crusades are better known to us, this slow process of Christian conquest, known as the Reconquista, also left a traumatic legacy and unquestionably shaped the history that would follow and relations to this day. And that is our subject on this show today, so stay with us. Unlike the Crusades, which start from a Muslim perspective with the sudden and shocking invasion of a European army into Palestine seemingly out of nowhere, the Christian conquest of Muslim Iberia was a very slow and gradual process. In fact, if we want to go back to the start, we have to go back to almost the beginning of the Muslim arrival in Spain. Now, the term Reconquista means reconquest, and it's a reconquest that begins practically the day after the Muslims arrive. Okay, now let me just pause for a moment here to address this term. And of course, my students can tell you that I don't like the term Reconquista at all. Uh, and I always point out to them that there was no such thing as Spain or Portugal to reconquer back in the uh, 8th century. And the fact that we will argue here, uh, Spain itself, the very nature of the kingdom and its character, was a product of the wars against Muslims. Uh, it's these very wars for the conquest of the uh, Iberian Peninsula that produces what we know as Spanish culture and the Spanish kingdom today. Now, some people argue back that, oh, there was a Roman colony of Hispania that existed. Okay, but that's a very different thing, uh, even if the name is related. When the Muslims arrived, this area was under the control of the Visigoths. In fact, the Arabic term for the area, El Andalus, comes from the word Vandals, who were also one of the groups that had controlled this area. And, of course, we know uh, what the, the memory of the word Vandals is and how that came into our language. Okay, so we're talking about very different groups of people than what is going to end up ruling Spain some centuries later. Now, this is a bit obscured because in the centuries that followed these wars, a great deal of effort would be expended to try and create the claim and buttress the claim that the Spanish kingdoms of Castile and Aragon, which would eventually take over the peninsula, were the successors of the Visigoths, the, the uh, descendants of the Visigoths. 
But this is really comes across as much more of a latter-day propaganda-type move than a reflection of reality. Uh, and of course, this will be argued back and forth. But it's not just that there wasn't a Spain or Portugal to reclaim. But many historians believe uh, that the nature of these kingdoms was what came out of the struggle against the Muslims. In the first place, they borrowed a large amount from the Andalusian Muslims. Some 10% of Spanish words come from Arabic, and we're talking important words like el and usted. These are Arabic words. And if you look at classical Spanish architecture and compare it to the Moorish architecture of Morocco and the art, it looks a lot the same. Okay, so the culture that ends up being developed is really a, a fusion of what was left of the Christian kingdoms and uh, the Islamic kingdoms. But beyond that, if we think about the Spanish culture of the early Renaissance, when we think of the iconic conquistador and what is happening from all the way from Chile up through California, we're not, generally not thinking about a pacifist um, you know, doing meditation or something. We get the idea of a warlike conquering people. Uh, and, you know, it, that is the direct result of 700 years of fighting Muslims for every inch of Iberia. It is no coincidence that 1792 is both the year that the last Muslim state in Spain surrenders and that Columbus is sent across the ocean. It's a, it's a continuing wave of conquest. The way many see it, uh, this Reconquista starts in northern Spain and pushes all the way to the Mediterranean, then across the Atlantic Ocean into the Americas. Now, of course, the Spanish don't go across to conquer the Muslims in North Africa, but their rivals, the French and the British, sure do. Okay, so... If so far uh, this has been the story of Muslim expansion at a rapid pace up to a certain point and then retreat and European colonization after that, what is the turning point? At what point does it stop becoming a Muslim expansion and start becoming a retreat? Well, when we're talking about this area, we're talking about Spain, we have to go back to an event that most did not consider very significant. It's, I mean, such a tiny change, uh, but it actually marks the, the shift of movement in one direction to movement in the other direction. Well, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. So let's look at this. In the year 711, of course, not the store, but the year, the Muslim, and it's mostly a Berber army, of Tariq ibn Ziyad crosses the Mediterranean. And of course, uh, Gibraltar is named after him, Jebel Tariq, the mountain of Tariq. And he conquers pretty much nonstop for 22 years. Well, raids continued all the way up through Sp uh, Spain into what is now France. Of course, those boundaries didn't exist at the time. As I said, there was no such thing as Spain. There was no such thing as France. But that border happens to be marked by a very prominent natural barrier, which is the Pyrenees Mountains, which is a very rugged area that has long been the border between kingdoms and states. So it forms a natural boundary uh, if it was not a political boundary at the time. Okay, so the Muslims will indeed 
cross that, they will actually establish a kingdom in what is now France. Um, but the energy is going to peter out. And so just over 10 years after the Muslims landed. Now think about this. We're talking about a process of um, fighting that lasts almost eight centuries total. And the turning point really comes 10 years after the beginning. Okay, so that's that's a tiny, tiny bit of time. So we have to look at this. It's not proportionate at all. So historians trying to mark, well, okay, where does the actual Reconquista begin? And it's one of these things like, um, you know, you have you have to say like where are you where does the uh, I don't know where does the ocean actually begin? Uh, it's a very difficult thing to say, but they usually mark it to this battle that occurs only ten years after Tarek initially lands in Spain. So first off, before we discuss this, we've got to talk a little bit about geography, which is very important here. Uh, the first Christian state to be established in Spain after the Muslim conquest was in the region of Astoria, which is in northwestern Spain. Now, of course, I realize you're probably listening to this. You don't have access to a map. And if you're driving your car or something, definitely don't go looking for one. Uh, but we can kind of forget what the geography of Spain looks like. In you know, overall, the peninsula looks like a big square. And it's connected to the rest of Europe, um, connected to France specifically. But that's not in the, the middle of the top. That connection is actually up in the northeast corner. So if you just remember that. Okay, well, the northwestern corner is largely surrounded by water on two sides. So it's a little bit of a remote area. It's also very rugged terrain. But the natural movement, the direction of conquest, is going up into Europe, uh, essentially going northeast up into France. And so this is not a key area. And we have to remember, this is not like a game of risk or something where you're trying to control the whole map. Um, they're, they're going after areas that are useful to them, that have something that they want. Okay, if that's the geography, then there's also personalities who come into this. And the key personality is a person named Pelagius. Of course, that's a Latin name. Uh, Paleo is what it is in Spanish. Uh, he is a Visigoth. He's a chief who would apparently come to terms with the Muslims and was working for them, you know, basically like as a governor. Um, and as we described... Of the Muslim conquest, one of the reasons they were able to go so fast is that they kept the local uh, administrations in power. And so this guy was running the area. He you know, worked out a deal, a peace deal with them. And so he was useful and they kept him there. Well, anyways, it wouldn't last very long. Uh, Pelagius is said to have rebelled, and specifically what he did, and this is the case of a lot of rebellions, is he refused to pay the jizya tax, which if you remember from this series, we talked a lot about it. This is the tax that non-Muslims have to pay. And in a medieval sense, it's actually a pretty lenient thing. It's like a normal, usually set at the whatever the normal tax rate was for everybody else. And it is uh, considered to be the compensation for them not serving in the army. Now, when this term comes up today, when it's used by the Muslim Brotherhood as something, it, it's um, 
sparks a lot of controversy. But anyway, this is basically how most of the rebellions went. He refuses to pay the tax. Well, that's a big problem. Uh, it's one thing leaving this guy there and letting him run this remote region that we're not really that interested in as long as we get the, the money that we would normally have collected. We stop getting anything from it, then, okay, he's a problem. So, uh, the Muslim governor, Altama, along with the Christian bishop of Sevilla, whose name is Oppa, uh, not the one from Kim's Convenience, but uh, this, is, this is his name, they go out with an army to bring him back in line. Now, all the chronicles make a big deal about the fact that a Christian bishop was with him, because in later years, when this struggle becomes portrayed as a religious struggle, a religious crusade, the fact that we have a you know Catholic bishop on the side of the Muslims is scandalous. He's a traitor. The reality is, at this point, it's mostly power politics. You know, religion and ethnicity may be one thing they're looking at, but they're mostly looking at this guy allying with this guy and who's working with him. So the idea that the, the bishop happened to be on the side of the Muslim governor is really nothing unusual. Um, and it really shows that at this point it, it was not a religious war. Anyway, Pelagius refuses to comply and so the Muslim army has to go after him. And this is where the terrain really comes into it because it's a very rugged terrain and the army has to go through a narrow mountain pass. And Pelagius has some of his forces hiding in a cave that is very well situated for an ambush. I mean, he knows the cave is there. They don't know the cave is there. And that's what happens. He ambushes this uh, Muslim force where it's trapped in a you know, narrow gorge and they've got no place to go. And according to the Astorian sources, it was a huge victory. One in which Pelagius's 300 men, much like the Spartans at Thermopylae, crushed a force of thousands. According to the Muslim sources, it was just an insignificant skirmish. And this is going to be the case with a, a lot of uh, encounters. Anyway, the place where this happens is Covadonga, and this becomes known as the Battle of Co Covadonga. It probably happened in the year 722. Um, and remember, the Muslims just arrived in Spain 711. So pretty soon thereafter. Now, this battle in and of itself doesn't sound significant at all, but this is usually cited as the beginning of the Reconquista, beginning in 722 and ending in 1492. Okay, a long time. Well, of course, history is whatever you make out of it. And so this may or may not have been a small battle, but it will take on epic proportions. This becomes the beginning of the Reconquista. And it's much like the way you can go to northern Minnesota today. and use, There's a tiny little creek up there. It's so small that you can stand with one leg on either side of it. And that is the Mississippi River. Or at least someone decided that was the start of the Mississippi River. You know, it starts small. At what point does it become big? Well, you know, then it's gradual. Okay, now, despite this, it's not a... Um, one-way thing and then uh, turning to be the opposite direction. So while uh, the Muslims are losing a battle here, they're continuing to win battles in other areas, but they are more interested 
in going up northeastern into the rest of Europe, into France. Uh, their forward progress, of course, will be uh, stopped at the much more famous Battle of Tours in France, or the Battle of Poitiers, as it's sometimes called, because it happens out on a field. It doesn't happen in any of those cities. Um, but because Astoria remains independent and stays Christian, and Pelagius's descendants will become the future kings and queens of Spain. He isn't a king himself. In many people's eyes, this is the start point. What starts as a little kernel here um, just becomes bigger and bigger. It's like that little creek that becomes the Mississippi River. So around this, a whole history grows. Um, the reality of which we may never know, but I mean, sounds a little bit uh, fishy. So anyway, it is said that at the Battle of Covadonga, uh, that Pelagius received a vision from the Virgin Mary herself, uh, telling him where to ambush the Muslims. And that was that cave. And so that cave became a shrine. It's now a holy cave and an, an important monastery would be built there to commemorate it. This is so important that even Pope John Paul in the 20th century visited this, this spot. Uh, and one of the elite units of the Spanish army is named the Covadonga. Okay, so, I mean, it takes on huge, huge proportions. I mean, kind of like the Battle of Bunker Hill is in the American Revolution. When you actually look at it, um, really wasn't much of a success, but it, it becomes a big deal. Okay, so anyway, Pelagius begins a dynasty that will last into the 11th century, at which point is succeeded by other Spanish dynasties which are related to it. So this may have been a minor skirmish, which was decided by key terrain in a very bad decision by the Muslim commander to walk into, you know, what was a, an ambush. But it becomes the Mississippi River of the Reconquista. Okay, so... We have Pelagius not only not being brought back into line, but having won a victory. And so his son-in-law is named Alfonso I. And this is the first in the line of many Alfonsos who will be important in the Reconquista. Uh, even we go into the 1300s, Ibn Battuta is fighting uh, Alfonso IX. And this particular Alfonso is nicknamed Alfonso the Catholic, I guess to set him apart from the others who, of course, were all, also Catholic. But uh, it kind of shows the shifting nature of the, the struggle. Okay, So he's obviously taking on a very religious um, air to himself. Now, he is going to significantly expand the territory of Astoria. And so the Arab chronicles, um, when they are looking at this, they refer to the entire region as the sons of Alfonso, uh, Ibn Alfonso. Um, and so this shows how important he becomes. Now, what's really important here is that an identity is being created. I mean, these are no longer Visigoths. Okay, this is a new kingdom, and at its core is the religion. Alfonso is going to begin a new dynasty that will last for a long time. And significantly, the colloquial Latin that is spoken there 
is not replaced by Arabic, which is what's happening in the rest of the peninsula, but instead it's going to slowly develop into Castilian and Leonese dialects, and which will become what we will later know as Spanish. And again, this is like the Mississippi River. At what point does the vulgar Latin become Spanish? Well, it's a very gradual process, and it takes on a lot of Arabic in the process. But this is what's going to happen. It's going to develop this identity. But the most importantly is the, the heart of this identity. The core of the identity of this kingdom is fighting against the Muslims that are surrounding them. The nature of the kingdom is beginning this religious war. So it's starting as a small thing, but it's already emerging. Now, Alfonso, though, he's, he's a smart guy. Uh, he's careful not to provoke things to a head before his kingdom is ready. I mean, yes, they, they've won a victory and he secures his independence, but the Umayyad Muslim state to the south is way more powerful than he is. And if he really, really ticks them off badly, he knows they can wipe them out. Uh, he doesn't want that. He wants to survive. So he establishes a buffer zone between his kingdom and the Muslims to the south. Uh, and again, uh, I have not been to this area of Spain, and I certainly don't want to get in trouble with anyone out there who lives there and, and loves it. But um, typically, you read through histories, this region of Astorias, um, it, it's seen as a remote kind of rugged um, region. I don't know, maybe like the Black Hills of, of South Dakota or something, you know, the Badlands that um, people generally stay away from. So what he does is he evacuates the cities and the forts along the Duero River, and this becomes known as the Desert of the Duero. And it stays largely empty for about a century. Now this is good because as we're going to discuss, the Muslim Umayyad state is, is going to go into basically a state of turmoil uh, is going to be very much uh, preoccupied fighting internal enemies and rebellions uh, and worrying about what's going on on the northeast where we have the whole rest of Europe. And so this area up there, you know, hey, if it's a sort of an abandoned um, desert land, well, just leave it, okay? It's not, not that hugely important that we have to deal with it which works out very well uh, because Alfonso is going to use this time and his descendants, they're not just going to sit there and say, oh, thank goodness we are safe. No, no, they are, they are building up and getting ready. And thus begins what seems like, you know, just a tiny little rebellion in a pocket of resistance that, hey, we'll come crush them later on. This becomes the beginning of you know what is going to be Spain as we know it. Okay, well. Despite the significance of Covadonga, the, the biggest setback to Muslim expansion, of course, happens about 10 years later. Uh, and this is in the famous year of 732, 
when a Muslim force led by the governor of Al-Andalus at the time, this is Abdul Rahman al-Rafiqi, uh, he managed to sack the French city of Bordeaux, uh, which was very uh, significant. Uh, but he would be defeated at the Battle of Tours or the Battle of Poitiers by the famous Charles Martel, which is, of course, means Charles the Hammer, who is seen as the founder of the Frankish Empire and, depending on who you believe, the savior of Western Europe. Now, in my high school, we had a kid named Charles Martel, uh, but I doubt if he even knew uh, who this other Charles was. Anyway, that's just interesting. Okay. Um, it's just hard to imagine that that kid defeating the um, the, the entire uh, Umayyad Empire. Anyway, the uh, the Battle of Tours, which is seen often in European history, or at least in legend, as saving Europe. I mean, the the whole reason that London is not a Muslim city today, kind of thing. Um, the truth is, of course, you, you have a better chance of finding out uh, about UFOs than you do of finding out what really happened at this battle. We do know the Franks won, and this is another one. The question is how significant uh, is it? Uh, we know that the Frankish army defeated the Muslim army. That there's no question. You know, the question is, you know, was this the Stalingrad of its day or was this, you know, just, you know, one of those minor little skirmishes that uh, took us by surprise, as the Muslim chronicles say. And um, you will you will never find out, but it generally depends on who's writing the history. If the person is a specialist in European history, then this is the, the greatest thing that ever happened. Uh, if they're a specialist in Islamic history, hey, this is this was nothing, you know, really... The conquests were over anyway, and they were going to go back. So, I mean, you know. And some try to claim that, you know, Charles Martel didn't really even do anything. It was a sneaky little victory anyway. And um, the way that this is explained is that Charles won the battle by creating the rumor that his forces were sneaking around the Muslims to raid their supply trains. Uh, which is where all the loot from the sacking of Bordeaux was stored. Now, if you know about medieval armies, uh, that's the way they were paid, okay? is The idea was when you conquered someplace, you got to loot everything from the people you defeated, and that was your pay. That was why you joined up in the, in the war in the first place. So if he's coming to steal the loot, um, then basically that's pretty significant, and you would desert the battlefield to go save it. Um, is that what happened or not? We'll, we'll never know. Uh, the point is, this is going to mark the end of Muslim expansion into France. Question of whether he, you know, Charles Martel saved Europe from becoming a Muslim uh, province by his brilliant tactics on the battlefield, or whether the Muslim conquests had run out of steam and everybody was settling down to become farmers anyway, um, that's one question that will probably never get answered. Um, so anyway, this is not all that's going on, however. In the year 740, there is a revolt of the Berbers, and the Berbers had been the backbone of this Muslim army. Uh, and so this causes turmoil in Al-Andalus. They have to go and put down this uh, rebellion. They have to go to North Africa. And this is really of much more significance than a defeat in France, which was, you know, sort of petering out anyway. 
So that's one big distraction that the Muslims have, but that's not even the biggie. Uh, you know what the biggie's going to be if you've followed this series. The bigger story is, of course, that the Umayyad Caliphate, which is what this uh, area of Andalus was part of, is about to be shattered back home at its base in Syria. And we have to remember, uh, this was still, at, one, at this point, one large empire. And as you often hear us say so many times, you're sick of it, stretching from Spain to India. Well, this is the point where it is actually stretching from Spain to India. Um, in very, uh, very few years, it's not going to be. And that's what happens, of course. We have the... Uh, the Abbasids defeat the Umayyads. I mean, that is the core story in this series. You're very familiar with this. In 750, the Umayyad Caliphate, largest empire of it in, in history up to that point, is overthrown. The Abbasids set up their capital. I mean, it's going to be a few years later that Baghdad becomes the capital. Um, but the Umayyads are out. Well, this is not just a peaceful transition. Uh, you know, we're not we're not talking about uh, whether the Umayyads were willing to work with the transition team of the Abbasids and give them access to office space here. No, the Abbasids uh, want to make sure that the Umayyads don't pose a problem, and so they actually hunt them down and kill them. Not just the Khalif, but pretty much everybody else who could um, stoke a rebellion and try and come back. So one of the very few survivors of the Umayyad royal family is Abdurrahman. He will become known as Abdurrahman I. And just like Alfonso is the name of the great uh, Spanish kings on one side, Abdurrahman is the name for all the great uh, leaders on the, the Muslim side. Uh, he's a grandson of the Umayyad Caliph. Uh, he's able to escape from Damascus to North Africa, and his mother was actually from North Africa, so uh, his relatives there shield him. Uh, the Abbasids, they're not just taking this lying down. They realize, hey, th this dude is a potential rebel. I mean, if you're going to overthrow a monarchy, you don't want to leave any claimants to the throne because somebody's going to you know, find some prince and put an army together and, and use them as a figurehead. So they send an army after him, but they're not able to actually get him. And the f fact is, as you know, we've mentioned before, the Abbasids will never take over North Africa. Uh, their, their, their reach will never extend that far. And so Abdurrahman is basically safe from them for a little while, but he's still a powerful guy. And, and for good reason, he's going to end up taking over. So, I mean, he's a threat wherever he goes. Okay, so um, initially, the uh, Muslim governors of Afrikiya, which, of course, it's the word for Africa, but it refers to basically what is uh, Tunisia and the area around there at the time. Um, they also rebelled against the Abbasids. They refused to acknowledge the Abbasids. So they say, hey, you, you know, you're a fellow rebel. You're fighting against them. So they said, you know, tell Abdurrahman, hey, come on in, make yourself at home. Um, but then they start to realize, hey, this guy is, you know, he is a potential threat to us. 
And so they basically uh, revoke that protection and they go after Abdurrahman, but he manages to escape, but he has to, he has to um, go on the run. So he goes someplace where he feels safer, and that is Spain. Now, although the Umayyad Caliphate has collapsed pretty much everywhere, um, they still have Spain. There's still an Umayyad um, running Spain, and, and there will be for centuries. Okay, so uh, Abdurrahman eventually he lands in Spain, and at this time, because of the fall of the Umayyads, Spain is in turmoil. The Umayyads there are fighting for their lives. Um, the Abbasids, they don't, you know, they're at, at this point, they think they're going to establish control uh, over Spain. So they're sending an army there. So when Abdurrahman shows up to all the Umayyad loyalists, they say, hey, here, here's our guy. Uh, they do coalesce. And against the odds, he eventually does win and he declares an emirate there. It is controversial uh, even to this day whether Abdurrahman himself claims to be a rival caliph, um, but definitely his descendants will. Uh, we do know he, he establishes an emirate at the point at which it becomes a, a, a rival caliphate to the Abbasids is somewhat debated. Uh, anyway, um, the Abbasids are not having anything to deal with this, so they actually send an army by sea. They land in, in what is northern Portugal today, uh, and Abdul Rahman has to fight them off. He actually defeats them. Now, it, again, things are in, in a state of turmoil, so there's this Abbasid army, there's the Umayyad army, there's a bunch of Muslim princes who are you know, largely independent at this point. And it's, you know, it, it's like a game of diplomacy of, you know, who, who allies with who against whom. Eventually, Abdurrahman wins. The Abbasids will never take uh, Spain. And Abdurrahman will found a dynasty that will last for centuries. Okay, so that sounds very confusing and chaotic. And that's the point. Uh, the whole point of mentioning that is with this going on, uh, one thing that Abdul Rahman is not focused on is trying to crush the holdout state of Astoria and its rebellious Christian ruler, particularly since there's a, a buffer zone, this desert of, uh, you, you know, established <clears throat> around him. I mean, we've we got other things to worry about. He has gone down on the pecking order. So it works out pretty well. Uh, Pelagius, who throws this rebellion you know, if things had been going well, they probably would have just sent another army out there, this one knowing where the cave is, and really, you know, whacked him good. But because of other events going on, and he manages to build up his forces. Okay, so uh, as we said, his uh, successor, Alfonso the Catholic, uh, he goes on the, the move. He conquers the regions of Galicia and Leon in northern uh, Spain. And again, these are never going to go back to the Muslims. Anyway, even with all this going on, this is not yet a crusade. Uh, it's not a crusade in Spain. And even the idea of a crusade hasn't 
develops yet. That's really going to develop in the 10th century, as we will discuss later on. And so, uh, in fact, there there is a religious character to Alfonso's campaigns. Now he's he's not getting this. It's not direction coming from the Pope at this point, which is you know the Pope is fairly weak at this time. But particularly with Alfonso, it takes on a much more religious character. And we have to remember he's just that one one ruler up in one corner of Spain. There's the whole rest of Europe. Uh, anyway, so a chronicle that's written as early as 754, I mean, putting this in perspective, 711 is when the Muslims arrive, uh, 722 was the Battle of Covadonga. We're talking 754, so pretty, uh, pretty recently after that, a, a historian chronicle, it describes the Muslim invasion in their defeat of the Visigoths, the initial invasion under Tariq, as God's judgment for the sins of the Gothic kingdom. Uh, and specifically, the last Visigoth ruler of Iberia, who's a person named Roderick. And of course, if you're the ruler who loses a kingdom, you, you always get a really bad rap, right? You get blamed for everything. You know, you have you have bad hygiene and you don't brush your teeth, whatever. Uh, of course, so all kinds of blame gets dumped on Roderick. And so he is singled out as being sinful, and it's his punishment that brings down his kingdom. Uh, but here again, it's significant that, okay, the Visigothic kingdom is seen as corrupt, sinful, and so God brings his judgment on them, as he does like in the, the Old Testament all these times, and sends heathens to crush them. Okay, and then of course Alfonso is seen as the savior, the one who rises up um, to get rid of the heathens. But it's a, it's a new birth. It's a birth of a new kingdom. It's not the reconquest of the Visigoths coming back. It is the birth of something new, and that something new is going to be Spain, of course. Now, as far as dealing with the Muslims, they also have theology to, to deal with them. So the, these chronicles identify the Muslims as the descendants of Ishmael, uh, who is, of course, the son of Abraham by his Egyptian maid. And remember, Abraham uh, wanted children. Uh, his wife, Sarah, who's 90 years old, couldn't have children. And so he impregnates his Egyptian maid. She has Ishmael. But then God works a miracle, and then Sarah has a son, Isaac. Isaac becomes the descendant of the Jews. Ishmael becomes the descendant of the Arabs. Now, everybody agrees on that. Muslims and Christians and Jews, everybody agrees on that. What they differ about is which son was more important. So if you grew up in a Judeo-Christian environment, I mean, you, you're told from the beginning that Isaac is the important one. Isaac is the, the one God blessed. Uh, this is the one that um, Abraham sacrifices, and he becomes, you know, the, the patriarch. Uh, Ishmael is the one. He's an outcast, um, you know, and he's described as a wild man and all this. In the Quran, Ishmael is the one offered up for s sacrifice. And even though... Um, you know, he's the son of a of a handmaiden and is abandoned in the desert. 
um, and, and Abraham dumps him and takes his you know son by his wife and, and moves away you know that sounds to us like you know definite preferential treatment but in in the Muslim story it, it's really made to sound like Ishmael is the preferred one that Abraham really likes him better God really likes him better um, he's far more important and he's the one who preserves the true faith which it's it's not you know it's not yet called Islam or, or anything else but the true faith while Isaac and his descendants go off and they distort it into this thing called Judaism. So again, it's, it's a different picture, but uh, for the people that, you know, these chronicles are written for, for the Astorians, for the people of Alfonso, when they talk about Ishmaelites conquering their land, uh, I mean, they definitely mean this in a negative way. They're talking, in, in their mind, it's talking about a group of people in the Bible who are outcasts, who are, you know, basically the result of someone disobeying God. And in fact, they quote the prophet Ezekiel, who says that Ishmael has sinned and will be punished when his people are defeated by the kingdom of Gog. Um, now, the, the kingdom of Gog is a, is a mysterious people that also appears in the Quran, and this has been associated with everybody from Turks to Mongols. Uh, when I was in church, I was told the Gog re represented Russia. It, it represents, you know, whoever you want to uh, say God is using to punish someone. But in this case, um, Ezekiel tells Ishmael, because you abandon the Lord, I will abandon you to the hand of Gog, and he will do to you as you did to him for 170 times. Okay, now that, that sounds fairly confusing. We got Ishmael, we got Gog, and we got 170 times, whatever that means. As far as the Christian Chronicles goes, they see the rise of Pelagius and Alfonso and their establishment of the Astorian kingdom as Gog. That is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And the number 170 means 170 years after these Ishmaelites arrive, um, they will be defeated. Now, it ends up taking longer than that, but you can see they're predicting still 170 years. They're predicting a long war. Okay. So this is definitely, we definitely have the basis for a religious war here. We're, we have a war that's being, you know, seen in terms of fulfilling biblical prophecies. Um, the thing we, we don't know, though, is how prevalent this feeling was. Of course, the people writing this, right, monks who are writing this and preaching this, uh, of course, I mean, this is important to them. But... You know, how much did this affect the average person, the average fighter? How much was this on their mind and how much were they just trying to take territory and, you know, get get loot? You know, that that is the part we don't know. Uh, we do know by the time we get to the 11th century, these themes become dominant and everyone is seeing the struggle this way.
Okay, well, while Afonso is expanding his territory, Abdurrahman has trouble with another northern region. Now he's, uh, you know, against the odds, he's managed to hold his uh, emirate together. He's managed to put down all kinds of rebellions and establish the Umayyad Emirate centered on Cordoba, which will, of course, flourish. It'll be, a, you know, a very, uh, one of the, the great civilizations. But he's still dealing with a lot of other issues, um, i.e., that is to say, he's dealing with a lot of threats that are more important than going after Alfonso and Astoria. So they are really, um, call it luck or call it divine providence, um, this, this group of rebels with, you know, with the cave, uh, you know, they're really getting a, a break and they're going to use it. Okay, so... Until the 750s, the southeastern part of France, which was known by its Roman name as Septimania, I mean, that is a very Roman-sounding name, right? Uh, that was actually under the control of Muslims. They had gotten that far. And particularly important to them was the port city of Narbonne, uh, because the Muslims were now a, a sea power in the Western Mediterranean as well. And so this was a rich region for them. It was, it was a very useful, important area for them. But with everything else in turmoil, uh, what, what always happens, right? The local rulers become basically independent and they you know, snub their nose at the central government. So there's a Berber governor there who is allied with the Christian duke um, of the the neighboring region, uh, and, and they're on very favorable terms. And in fact, even in this province of the Muslim uh, state, uh, the Christians are living under very favorable conditions there. So, um, you know, th this guy has more issues with the central government uh, down in Cordoba than he does with any of his cr Christian neighbors. Unfortunately. Um, the Umayyad government decides to reassert control, uh, and so they send a force, they send an Umayyad governor up there, Omar ibn Umar, and they retake this area. Okay, so that's going to upset the balance because uh, initially we had this Muslim state living next to the Christian states, and you know they were actually getting along pretty well, and they were both of them sort of united in hostility against the Umayyads in the, in the south, in Spain. Now the Umayyads have taken control of this area of France, and this is going to spark another conflict. So Charles Martel, our hero from the Battle of Tours, he's dead, uh, and his son, who is known as Pepin the Short, very, you know, very... Uh, glorious name there. Uh, he has taken control of the Frankish state and you know despite his sort of uh, derogatory name he's actually expanding it even more and it's coming closer to becoming an empire. Now this is really going to become the Frankish empire under Charlemagne um, in about 50 years time but Pepin is still uh, he's expanding and he's consolidating. And unlike Charles, Pepin is brought up in a church school. He has a very religious education, and he has strong ties to the Pope. Now, we are definitely not at the era of the Crusades, where the Pope has a lot of influence over kingdoms. Uh, the Pope, actually, at this time, is pretty weak. He's like a local bishop who doesn't control much outside his immediate area. But Pepin, uh, as the leader of the Franks, 
you know, which is what is going to become France, uh, he's got strong ties to the Pope, and he actually donates land that will become the Papal States. And so this is, again, the beginning of a religious military alliance. And so as part of this, he goes after Septimania. And in the year 759, Narbonne falls, and the Muslims are effectively pushed back across the Pyrenees Mountains, meaning they're pushed back into what is now Spain, out of France, and they will never return. And again, it's interesting how many of what seem like you know temporary setbacks, like land changing hands back and forth, are going to end up becoming permanent turning points. And this is one. The, the Muslims are now out of the rest of Europe forever. Okay, well, what is Abdul Rahman doing about all of this? Well, recognizing the annoyances that he faces in the north, but he knows he has to con concentrate on his rule in central Iberia and southern Iberia, which is much more important. Uh, what he's going to do is he's going to establish uh, three regions in the north, which are known as Thoreau. And this term is usually translated into English as marches. Now, march is a term that is used by historians that... Um, Nobody else uses this way. It's a strange term, but a march used by historians is like a borderline between two warring states. It's sort of a frontier where things change hands and people can go um, and you know further their careers, get a lot of glory and you know military conquest and so forth. Kind of like on the the Roman frontier with Scotland, where there were plenty of opportunities to go fight. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's what we're talking about by a, a march. It's called a marca uh, in, in Spanish. Uh, but in, in Arabic, it's a thagha, you know. And so he establishes three of these. So these are essentially, you know, we would call them like military governors, you know, military states. The three of these are called the Edna, the Auset, and the Allah, which if you know Arabic, you'll recognize those words means the closer... Um, the middle and the the high march, right? Uh, the first one, the Edna, is basically running through like the middle of Portugal. Uh, the middle one, the Ausset, is north of the capital of Cordoba and south of Astoria. Okay, the high one is the one that goes all the way up to the Pyrenees Mountain, meaning that the border with what is now France, in uh, on one side of this, on the other side, is Barcelona, the state of Barcelona, which is going to be a perennial uh, trouble spot. It's one that, that they're going to have to deal with constantly. So what's happening is Abdul Rahman is, is conceding, at least in the short term, uh, the unstable nature of the northern regions and sort of um, the, the limited degree of control he has, right? So these are not full-fledged, you know, provinces with, with all of that. They're like military buffer states. What we're trying to do basically is just hold back the enemy for the time being, creating a buffer. And I'm, I'm sure he expects that, you know, once things get consolidated, we're going to go back up there and retake all of this. But of course, that's not what's going to happen. Okay, so... 
After dealing with all these threats from different areas, the next one to rebel is the northeastern region of Barcelona. And this is a perennial trouble spot. You know, Barcelona, it's up in the northeastern corner. It's hard to get to, right? Even today, it's sort of a separatist area. But in this case, it is the Muslim governor. Right? It's run by a Muslim, Suleiman al-Arabi. But he rebels against the Umayyad emir. So this is not a religious struggle. This is a struggle of one Muslim uh, ruler against another. But he's going to do something unusual. Um, by this time, enough time has passed that uh, now Pepin the Short is gone and Charlemagne, the most famous Frankish ruler, the one who really establishes the Frankish Empire, which is going to be the first great European empire since the fall of Rome, he is now in charge of the Frankish Empire. Well, he is somewhat of an expansionist as well. So, Suleiman al-Arabi looks around. Uh, he knows he's got this conflict with the Umayyads to the south. Okay, who can I get to back him up? So, he invites Charlemagne to come in and join forces against Abdul Rahman. So, we're definitely not talking about a holy war here. Okay, uh, we're talking, we've got one Muslim power and uh, one Christian power fighting another Muslim power. Uh, he's bringing in outside muscle, which happens to be Christian muscle, but hey, what the heck. Anyway, it doesn't work out. Uh, Charlemagne thinks he's going to take over. Uh, and Suleiman thinks, hey, I'm just bringing you in to be muscle and do my work for me. Well, this is a little bit of a conflict. And so when Charlemagne does not get what he wants, he lays siege to the city of Zaragoza. Uh, the siege fails, and he has to retreat back across the Pyrenees Mountains, where he's ambushed by the Basques, so it ends up being a disaster. <clears throat> by the way, this, this incident ends up being the subject of the very famous Chanson de Roland, the very famous French epic poem, even though it doesn't seem at all like a significant incident to us. But that's just you know, what happens, right? Great literature gets written about things that don't seem that significant. Anyway... So um, Suleiman does not hold out, and his, his alliance with Charlemagne doesn't work, but he's done something very dangerous. He's taken this expansionist uh, emperor and given him a taste for, hey, you can, you can come down south and fight here. Look at the chaos we're in. You know, we're fighting one against each other. One Muslim prince is fighting another one, and uh, we're even willing to make deals with outside Christian powers. Uh, it's not something that Charlemagne is going to forget. So yes, most of his effort is going to be in conquering France and then Germany. Hey, but he sees, hey, there's land for the picking south of the Pyrenees. At this point, however, there, there's not a big push to reclaim Iberia from the, the Muslims. And so I want to stress that, that uh, there is not this sense of a general crusade to retake this land. In fact, the, the one thing they do seem interested in taking, though, is churches that have fallen into Muslim hands. So there's a, the, the knowledge that some churches have been taken over, they've been turned into mosques, and this is just seen as terrible. And so we have to go back and um, recapture these churches. And so there are local fights to take over the churches. The Omeyyad state is unstable. It's off balance. It's too worried about its own internal troubles to worry about small little incursions on the periphery, local rulers making attacks to take back certain churches. 
uh, and so they're going to let it go. But significantly, those who are retaking churches, this is not a you know seen as some divine plan to punish the Muslims for being the wrong religion. Or there's definitely no sense, no um, call at all to convert these people to Christianity. There's no interest in that whatsoever. Uh, it's just trying to get the churches back. Okay, so still at this point, things are more likely to be local uh, conflicts, and that's what the fight with Suleiman al Arabi shows. I mean, it's it's still not, it's still not even divided by ethnic lines. Uh, and it's definitely not really divided by religious lines, even though someone like Alfonso may have a religious vision for this. Uh, the papacy, as we said, is still more like a local religious authority, and um, they, they're really not um, having any vision of trying to reconquer lost land for Christianity. And that's how things sit, basically, in the 8th and 9th centuries. The Umayyad Emirate of Cordoba has stabilized. Um, it, it's going to become the Caliphate. It's going to remain very powerful. Cordoba will be the largest city in Europe for centuries. But it's really beginning in the 11th century. In the 10 hundreds, things are going to change. Um, the idea of the strong pope, of universal popal, uh, papal power, the emergence of strong kingdoms in Western Europe, and the disintegration of the Umayyad state is going to, to pave the way for a religious crusade. Yes, the one that, that we know of in Palestine, but also a, a very definite religious crusade in Spain at the same time. And it's going to change the nature of this struggle. And that will be our subject for next time. So, thank you very much for your kind attention. I hope you will join us for that. Until then, we'll see you next time. Shukran Jazeelan wa ma'a salama. Mm -hmm.